this episode. I'm your host, Matt, and this episode is going to be hopefully the last part with uh, Gary Webb. We're going to kind of uh, skim over the CIA report, the House Committee report, and uh, the rest of what Gary Webb had pretty much uh, done throughout his life leading up to his death. And then we might look at some um, theories about how Gary Webb had, had died. Um, let me uh, type that in really fast, but without further ado, I hope that uh, you didn't miss me too much, but if you did, that's great. Uh, sorry that there was no Wednesday episode. I uh, kind of uh, uh, made a post that stating that I wanted better headphones, so I got better headphones today. I switched back to Galaxy Airbuds. Um, we aren't using my Beat headphones for any podcast. We don't need noise uh, issues where there's so much background noise going on with it. And anyhow, and if you haven't uh, pretty much been on Facebook with our Facebook page and all of that, uh, then go do so. You can follow us on Facebook at uh, After Dark Coast to Coast Killers. I, I eventually will change that at some point. But, you know, this is a weekend where we are uh, just doing late night rabbits episodes and then uh, maybe a couple other things. I do want to also mention that hopefully I will have the uh, Gabby Petito and Brian Laundre uh, trailer out at some point soon. Uh, I'm still trying to figure out how to uh, pretty much involve it uh, and morph it to where it sounds interesting. Um, Because obviously there's still new stuff coming out about that case, including a lawsuit that was filed recently. I guess there's really no theories about his death. Uh, We can always speculate that Gary Webb died to gunshot wounds, but we'll get into that uh, later on. So, last episode in part two, we discussed uh, the Dark Alliance series in a little bit more detail, specifically uh, not just that, but we went into the Justice Department report where a lot of it just uh, relayed what we already learned with uh, newspaper articles and, you know, how... uh, kind of contradicted itself. If you haven't caught up and even listened to part one, go do so. 
that's going to help out a lot and you're going to be caught up because it's a lot of information but if you've been following along thank you uh, now we are just going to go right into the episode now like I said we are going to uh, skim over uh, the CIA report and House Committee report because it, it's going to pretty much go over kind of uh, what the Justice Department report included. That pretty much, uh, uh, pretty much talk about the same thing. But in short, the CIA Inspector General's report was issued in two volumes. It was originally classified for each, and then it was declassified or uh, unclassified, I should say, as well. And I I don't want to say that the classified version and the unclassified version of each report is different because we know how the government is with classified and unclassified reports. It's obviously going to change over uh, the course of, uh, you know, what they want to say and everything. So... Just keep that in mind. But with the CIA report, it was two issues, or two volumes, I should say. The first one was titled The California Story, and it was issued in a classified version on December 17th of 1990, or 1997. Sorry. And then the unclassified version was released the following year, uh, a little over a month after the classified version. Then the second volume was called Contra Story and it was issued originally as a classified version on April 27th of 1998 then released a few months after of the same year in October. According to the report, the Inspector General's Office or OIG examined all information uh, the agency had relating to CIA knowledge about the uh, drug trafficking drug trafficking allegations and how much the CIA uh, knew about pretty much drug smuggling and contract activities and how the CIA handled and responded to information regarding the allegations of drug trafficking by people involved in Contra activities or support. And in the first volume, it was stating that there was no evidence really that uh, there was no evidence that any past or present employee of CIA or anyone acting on behalf of CIA had any direct or indirect dealing with Ross, Blanded, or Mises, or that any of the other figures mentioned in Dark Alliance were ever employed or by or associated with or contacted by the CIA. And it found nothing to support the claim that the drug trafficking activities of Blandit Menezes were motivated by any commitment to support the Contra cause. 
or contra activities undertaken by the CIA. It did note that Blanda and Menezes claimed to have donated money to contra sympathizers in LA, but found no information to confirm if that was true or if the agency had heard of it. And it also found uh, no information to support the claim that the agency interfered with law enforcement actions against Ross Blandit or Menezes. I'm going to multitask a little bit. And I, I kind of want to uh, find um, let's see. I kind of want to find this report if I can. Uh, let's uh, I, uh, I don't know if this is going to be a proper one because it's from NC or NSA. Um, yeah. Uh, it's just talking about an article. Um, I don't know if I can find it. But let's just move on from it, I guess. Uh, with the House Committee report, the House Intelligence Committee issued its report in February of 2000. According to the report, it used Webb's reporting and writing as key resources in focusing and refunding the investigation. Like the CIA and Justice Department reports, they also found that neither Blandin, Manises, nor Ross were associated with the CIA. Examining the support that Manises and Blandin gave to the local Contra organization, San Francisco, the report concluded that it was not sufficient to finance the organization and did not consist of millions, contrary to the claims of the Dark Alliance series. The support was not directed by anyone within the Contra movement or who had an association with the CIA. The committee found no evidence that the CIA or the intelligence community was aware of these, these individuals' support. It also found no evidence to support Webb's suggestion that several other drug smugglers mentioned in the series were associated with the CIA, whether anyone associated with the CIA or other intelligence agencies was involved in supplying or selling drugs in Los Angeles. So it kind of goes along with uh, uh, whether or not the government wants to admit it because, hell, you know, we, the government has had so many scandals uh, over the years uh, throughout history, general. But uh, it is, I don't want to say it's surprising because it's not. It's very uh, realistic of what the government would do. Um, but at the same time, I think that a lot of what investigation, uh, whether it's modern day journalism or modern day government investigations, uh, it is just something that 
doesn't necessarily need a lot of thought. And I, I kind of talked about uh, poor investigative journalism in part two of this uh, Gary Webb mini uh, series or whatever you want to call it. And I, as I explained, journalism today is so unrealistic, it's so easy. Uh, any journalist, whether it's a news reporter or uh, a journalist that has to go to uh, a scene, they, they can literally grab a story off the internet and rewrite this story in very, very simple words. And that's that. They don't want to do any investigating, and it's like the government. The government doesn't want to do much investigating, and they think that if if they wanted to do it, they would take uh, caution and a lot more seriousness with it. So it's just focusing on uh, one thing and not everything else. But let's go on to another record. This is called the Congressional Record. Um, it is titled CIA Amidst Ties to Contra Drug, Drug Dealers. This is dated July 17th, 1998. House of Representatives, page H5847. This goes on today, or not today, uh, uh, this kind of uh, goes into Miss Waters a little bit as well, so I'll just read it. Um, think of it as uh, a kind of a back and forth conversation here and there. So the speaker, uh, pro tempore, starts out as under a previous order of the House, the gentlewoman from California, Miss Waters, recognized for five minutes. Miss Waters stated that today I renew my call on CIA Director George Tennant to immediately release the CIA Inspector General's classified reports on the allegations of CIA involvement with contra drug trafficking. So pretty much she's like, hey, you know, this is a, uh, this is serious shit. Uh, American people want to know the truth. And she goes on stating, today's New York Times front page put it bluntly. CIA says it used uh, pretty much the cartels, rebels, accused of drug tie. The Times reported that, I quote again, the Central Intelligence Agency continued to work with about two dozen rebels and their supporters during the 1980s, despite allegations that they were trafficking in drugs. We, uh, we never necessarily brushed up on that in part two, but we did talk about a raid that happened 
1986 with, uh, I think, uh, Blandon. Um, and but in part one, we kind of touched up on the CIA actually working with uh, the rebels and the cartels and conchos and drug smuggling support and everything else. Um, Times re finally reported the explosive truth that the Senate investigators and investigative journalists alike have been telling the American people for nearly 15 years. She goes on saying that the uh, front page confirmation of CIA involvement with contra drug traffickers evidently came from a leak of the still classified CIA review of the allegations stemming from Gary Webb's 1996 Dark Alliance series. And I want to point this out, uh, that first uh, uh, sentence in the fourth or fifth paragraph. Any front page headline doesn't necessarily mean it's uh, uh, true. Uh, headlines, even before the whole uh, media propaganda, pretty much uh, just wants you to grab your attention. So, of course, any headline can be like, oh, this guy uh, murdered somebody. Oh, the government's using chemicals in the air uh, and everything else. Uh, just because it's front page. It doesn't mean it's confirmation, but as we've talked about in part one, we know that CIA was involved with drug smuggling of crack cocaine. And I don't know if the CIA review that she's talking about is the CIA report, but like I said, there's two versions of uh, the reports, not necessarily the CIA report, uh, if I remember correctly, let me just double check, yeah, the CIA report and the House Committee report, there's two versions, and I've stated, and I, I guess uh, you can obviously tell over the years, uh, classified reports, when they're released, probably doesn't have certain information in them, definitely one is a huge ass scandal with the CIA or any part of the government. They're going to release an unclassified report uh, taking away what the American people uh, sure like want to believe or, or uh, you know, what not. Um, let's see. She goes on stating until today, the CIA has uh, denied the charges, but apparently even the CIA is having trouble hiding the truth from the American people. Um, let's see, the elite CIA report remains classified as she states, sitting at the House Permanent Select Committee on intelligence because the CIA refuses to declassify a report full of what are being described as the de de devastating revelations of the CIA involvement 
with no contra drug traffickers. So it sounds like uh, the CIA didn't want to uh, release this report. And I can say it plenty of times, it probably means they're hiding something. Uh, whether or not they are, it's just kind of like, mm, we don't really want to release this because we know that it has information that could be uh, pretty much wrecking our whole reputation. So pretty much this goes on uh, to the end within the five minutes that she spoke and was recognized as uh, her calling on the CIA and all of that. Uh, there is the Congressional rec rec uh, Record uh, dated Friday, September 20th of 1996. You can find this on govinfo.com. Um, it just pretty much goes over a little bit about Miss Waters as well, as I read from the other report. Let's see. She does state uh, and praises Gary Webb, stating that uh, I am spending a lot of time on this issue because I believe it is important for the citizens of this country to know and understand how this country finds itself with crack addiction, crime, crack-born babies, hospital overloaded with overdoses of crack cocaine, turf wars, all of this devastation. She pretty much is stating, we have everything kind of to uh, say there is crack cocaine out there. And it's true. Uh, even though hospitals aren't overflowing necessarily with overdoses, people that are overdosing are not just crack cocaine, but a lot of other drugs are filling the hospitals. And when we talk about the opioid crisis, the opioid crisis, uh, we're seeing a rise in it. And in some parts, hospitals are just overfilled with those uh, overdoses. She questions uh, where did it come from, who caused it. Um, and this article, these series of articles that were done by the San Jose Mercury News, must be focused on Mr. Gary Webb, the author of the series. And this is not a fly-by-night journalist. This is not someone who just thought this up and decided they would write something. He spent over a year investigating the leads that came to him. And what did he uncover? Uh, he discovered that in the late 1970s, 1979, early 1980s, two CIA operatives, Mr. Danilo Blandin and one other gentleman, found their way into South Central Los Angeles. They connected up with a gentleman, a young man named Ricky Ross. They began to supply him with tons of cocaine. That cocaine was cooked into crack. Those are the rocks that plague our communities today. Prior to the introduction of cocaine by Mr. Blandin and Mr. Manises, cocaine was not a factor in minority neighborhoods in the inner cities. 
Cocaine was a drug of the elite, of the more well-to-do, of kind of rich and the famous. It was expensive, it could not be afforded by poor people, and it was really not a factor in poor communities. I do want to support that statement, because whether or not you're purposely researching top of the uh, market drugs, or uh, new drugs that are rising popularity, we, we see this with those type of drugs. Uh, if crack cocaine boomed and had an empire in Los Angeles, specifically South Central, poor people can't afford crack cocaine. If the, the demand of crack cocaine was so high, that means the prices of crack cocaine would have gone up. It's like weed, I hear a lot of people uh, in illegal states that where uh, weed isn't uh, legal there, uh, they pretty much say that certain areas in that state, certain drug dealers will rise the price of it. Uh, and we see that a lot with like bath salts and uh, newer drugs that I've stated. Um, let's see what else she says, I guess, and then uh, we'll change the subject. Um, she says it was only when the CIA operatives working with Ricky Ross discovered that you could cook it and you could put it into crack form that it could be so cheaply because you could spread it around. You could get more out of it. So she's saying you have you have uh, one drug and another, you mix the two. Now you got something. Now you got something that's going to become addictive, that more people are going to want the demand of it. And you can kind of just spread it around. And, uh, and so they begin to cook up the crack. They put it out into the communities on consignment. And what does that mean? Prior to this time, you had to have money to get into the drug business. So, and I don't know if this is true necessarily. I do believe that uh, there is a certain start where you need the money to do uh, your own things with it. Whether it's adding two drugs together uh, having supplies to make even meth, uh, to grow your own weed. No, you have uh, to have money at some point in a drug business. That that is correct. Um, and necessarily though, to kind of form two drugs, uh, I I can't say. I can't necessarily say that it's entirely true. But if you wanted to be a drug dealer, you had to go and buy cocaine. You bought it with it by the kilos. Oftentimes it's like weed, you buy it by the grams. Um, but when these CIA operatives started to work with Ricky Ross, they eliminated the need to have money. 
to invest to become a drug dealer. They put it out on consignment. And as we uh, talked about, I think, in part two, everybody came to Ricky Ross. Ricky Ross had an empire, a drug empire. He was the kingpin of crack cocaine in South Central LA. And if you didn't go for him for crack cocaine, he didn't want no business with you. So when these CIA operatives came to Rick Ross, they didn't need to have the money. Ricky Ross had the money. Ricky Ross had a drug empire full of crack cocaine. He had everything to give these two CIA operatives in short. And they worked for him. And they worked for the conscious. And the CIA helped. It continues going on uh, with, I guess, her stating, uh, when you understand this consignment spread of cocaine and crack, then you understand why they also brought the guns in with them. We wandered in South Central Los Angeles. Where are these guns coming from? The, they were not simply handguns. They were Uzis and AK-47s, suffocated weapons brought in by the same CIA operators because they had to enforce bringing the profits back in. Now, that whole part is new to this whole entire series. I don't know why she necessarily brought it, but it is a, a good, touchy subject. I was watching a documentary by Weiss a year or so ago about how the drug problem, or not the drug problem, but the gun problem in Chicago is way much worse because it is easier to cross state lines from from Illinois to Indiana. Indiana literally gave a 17-year-old a gun without a background check, without making sure he had a license for one. Making sure that there was a parent involved. And he was able to carry that gun from Indiana back to Illinois. Without any police stops. Without anybody questioning him. So she does have a point there. She, She does. When you have newer guns entering a city such as LA like Uzis and suffocated weapons like AK-47s into a city or into a place where they didn't exist but all of a sudden they do you gotta start questioning how in the fuck are these guns getting here she uh said that they were brought in by the same CIA operators because they had to enforce bringing the profits back in. Like I said, I'm not an expert on gun trading. I don't know if that's true. 
it's new to this whole entire series. But if you have Contra support, if you have a Rebel support, you're giving somebody weapons. You're giving your allies weapons. You're giving your enemies weapons. Those weapons are going to go everywhere and anywhere if they have to. About this time, when you saw more and more guns coming into the community, you also saw more and more killings, more and more violence. Now we know what was going on. The drugs out in our communities, on consignment, were being put out to the gangs and others. If they did not bring the profits back, the guns were brought in so they could enforce control. It, it's pretty much saying uh, gangs kind of exist in this form of time to enforce the control to get profit. If you ever heard of a, uh, or know some stories, I should say, of gang members getting their profit back, definitely inside of prisons. Prisons is a really big one, just like outside of prisons. You know, in prisons, it works like that. If somebody doesn't give you back your profit, and the profit in this case isn't money, but it's more likely a commission or a food, or a not commission, but commissary. If somebody's not paying you back, you're going to get that profit back. You're going to get your commissary back. You're going to do everything to get it back, no matter what the consequences are. And these guns, according to Miss Walters, was that way. These gangs and these drug dealers like Ricky Ross and so on and so forth, where they're getting their profit, they bring in the guns, they enforce control, they bring fear into the streets and say, give us our profit because we have guns and you don't. <coughs> Sorry about that. <coughs> but, you know, aside from that, according to Mr. Bladden, he is on record under oath, testifying at a trial that yes, he was a CIA operative. <coughs> Sorry once again. And that he, but he was also engaged in funding the war. That happened in uh, Mexico or South, uh, South America, I think it was South America. Um, he was one of those that helped form the army in the of the Contras, the FDN. Um, he was a son of a very rich uh, person, which was his father or mother, somebody um, that raised him, I guess, parent. And they were involved with Somoza and part of the Somoza government. You know, not saying this is important, but they pretty much had an army and they had to supply them. They had to keep the guns to them. They had to feed the soldiers. They had to close the soldiers. They had to put together an army. And yes, 
They had a lot of support from the right wing and conservatives right here in the Congress of the United States who set out to get the citizens of this nation to use their hard-earned dollars to help fund that war. The effort was resisted by many in the, this house, but they persisted. But long before they got any dollars, there was money flowing to the FDN and to the so-called resistance armies. She questioned where did the money come from. We know now that the money was coming from the sale of drugs to the citizens of America. The profits of which went back down to fund the FDN working with other countries and connected with Samosa and you know pretty much was embraced by the right wing of America. You know, we're not necessarily gonna read everything that she says because it's everything but she uh she does have some pretty good points in it. Um let's see yeah she just goes uh you know more and more about it but let's go talk about Gary Webb again you know this is what uh, part these parts are dedicated not just to the CIA scandal but to the guy that exposed this this scandal now shortly after he resigned from Mercury News he expanded Dark Light series into a book that responded to the criticism of the series and described his experiences writing the story, dealing with the controversy. A revised version was published in 1999 that incorporated Webb's response to the CIA and Justice Department reports. <clears throat> Let's see, it was a bestseller, obviously. Uh, his later views um, and interviews after leaving Mercury News, Webb described the 1997 controversy as media manipulation. Quote unquote, he says, the government side of the story is coming through the LA Times, the New York Times, the Washington Post. They use the giant corporate press rather than saying anything directly. If you work through friendly reporters on major newspapers, it comes off as the New York Times saying it and not a mouthpiece of the CIA. And uh, we see that today. We have corporate press and we have uh, the siblings of it, you know, like local news and all of those uh, news stations and newspapers. But the media press today and I guess has always been secretly doing it, has been in control. It's all about the money. It's all about your viewers. If you have no viewers, you have no news station. You have no newspaper. So the media corporate is in control. Not just that, it, it is kind of a government push in a way. Where we see so much about politics. We see so much about what this politician is saying, what this politi politician is doing. Uh, and so on and so forth. Those are the stories that are being pushed to us. I'm not saying it's media manipulation, but um, corporate media has manipulation because they feed 
to its viewers, whether it is factual or not. His later career, uh, he worked as an investigator for the California State Legislature. His assignments include investigating racial profiling by the California Highway Patrol and charges that the Oracle Corporation had received a no-bid contract award of $95 million in 2001. He also continued to do freelance investigative reporting, um, sometimes based on his investigative work while working for or at the legislature. He published an article on racial profiling and traffic stops in his choir magazine in April of, April of 1999, short. Um, let's see. Then he was found dead. Now, his autopsy, it has been ruled a suicide. Obviously, was it really a suicide? Um, I don't think so. And that's because Webb was found dead with two gunshots to his head. Two gunshots. It's not like the first one killed him. Because according to uh, the autopsy, the first shot went through his face and exited at his left cheek. The coroner's staff concluded that the second shot killed him because it hit an artery. But I guess it's possible, but at the same time, you would be in so much pain from the second, or from the first gunshot, that you probably wouldn't want to do a second gunshot. But I guess at the same time, if you were in so much pain, you would probably want to be put out of misery as well. Um, let's see. Obviously, that did raise a lot of questions within people. Um, when asked by local reporters about the possibility of the two gunshots being a suicide, um, Coroner Robert Lyons replied, It's unusual in a suicide case to have two shots, but it has been done in the past, and it is in fact a distinct possibility. So he's pretty much saying, you know, I ruled it as a suicide. It is unusual for it to be a suicide, but that is what I ruled it as. Um, so he, it is still possible that it wasn't a suicide. Um, but Webb's widow, Susan Bell, told reporters that uh, she believed Webb, Webb had committed suicide. Uh, according to her, she stated that the way he was acting, it would be hard for me to believe it was anything but suicide. She said, according to Bell, Webb had been unhappy for some time over his inability to get a job at another major newspaper. He sold his house the week before his death because he was unable to afford the mortgage. Um, so it's possible still, but that pretty much sums up this, uh, 
this whole uh, series or whatever you want to call it. I know this was a little bit boring. Uh, maybe you wanted a little bit more. Uh, maybe you wanted a little bit more focused on his death. Uh, I don't know, but... Now I know this was a little bit slower episode, but it's only 12.28 a.m. Central Time. So, a lot of you probably are falling asleep, wanting to fall asleep, and you need something that's calmer, uh, less bit vivid and visual to fall asleep to. Like I said, that's why I created Midnight Rabbits for Somniacs. Not just for Somniacs, but for people that are night owls, are always searching for something at night to entertain them, or to find interesting, or whatever, the whole 10 yards, you know, so I did want to end this, uh, this part in the CIA scandal, and the whole, uh, wrap up with the Comer side. You know, uh, do the fact that one, it was coming out so late, and two, it was, you know, just one of those episodes where there wasn't really much. But without further ado, tomorrow we're going to have a new episode of Late Night Rabbits. It's not going to be obviously the CIA scandal. Uh, it's done now. Uh, I don't, I, I don't remember what it is. It might be, uh, uh, simulation theory or something. I don't remember anymore. But whatever it is tomorrow, hopefully you guys uh, stay tuned to it. And get some sleep. I'm going to get some sleep. And you guys have a great night. Thank you once again for tuning into Late Night Rabbits. The CIA Scandal. Part 3 of 3. I'll see you guys next time.